0: Do some recording because I've been recording a series of talks uh, based on the Four Noble Truths, and um, last week uh, I wasn't quite ready to delve into this Third Noble Truth, and you know to be honest, I'm not sure if I'm actually ready today either, Um, but. It's my assignment. (laughs) It's not really an assignment. It's just it's what I've agreed to do and we've been moving in this direction. And so um, we'll just see what happens. I mean, I ended up talking a bit about it last week as well. But so this is uh, the third noble truth. And to orient you, um, those who maybe it's your first time here, the four noble truths are the basic tenets of Buddhism. It's not the only, but it's the core of the teaching of uh, the Buddha. In his first teaching, it's his first, the way that it's understood is after he reached this clear knowing, which we call Nibbana, he contemplated The ability to kind of carry the message, like, how am I going to explain this experience to people? And there was some in in the scriptures, in the suttas, uh, there's some variants of, you know, maybe he was hesitant. And one of the reasons he was hesitant is that it was so difficult for him. Uh, And he didn't feel that. People would get it. You know, he just didn't feel that. People would understand. And one of the... And as he's retelling, you know, the... the He's basically retelling the story to a group of monks later on in his life. <clears throat> and that's what was recorded. His retelling of it. And um, he basically was like, you know, there's so much greed. There's so much hatred. And there's so much delusion, ignorance in... The minds of people uh, in society that uh, it might not be heard. You know, uh, one of the ways that it was described is um, that there are folks with so much dust in their eyes, so not seen clearly. And then, uh, you know, he came to this. Well, out of compassion, really, uh, he decided. Well, but, I mean, there was these guys, these these ascetics that I was training with, that weren't far off. They were pretty close, you know, to the uh, understanding, but they were just stuck in a rigid view. And um, he thought, well, if I'm able, if I'm able to communicate to them, maybe they'll be able to understand. And if they can be. Let go of the rigid view of, of asceticism. Maybe they can get it. So he set out. And as he's formulating, he's formulating this talk, this teaching, are all that he kind of gained in this insight, um, really a series of insights. So he came up with this compact teaching known as the Four Noble Truths. And I, I think of them actually as um, Russian dolls. You know, when I was a kid, I my sister had some. They're Russian dolls. And that there's one big Russian doll. And then you take that, and then there's another. And then you open that. And then there's, you know, and then they just keep coming smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the first Russian doll that's kind of housing all of the teachings is the Four Noble Truths. And that uh, the unpacking begins from the understanding of this first. Teaching the four noble truths, and they're considered noble because um, they're not absolute truths. They're noble, meaning worthy of investigation, worthy of contemplation, worthy of practice. Uh, And I actually I find that really appealing. You know that they're not. This is the absolute truth because it. You know, would probably have been turned off. at at the time. Because anything absolute, just, matter of fact, you know, the other basic tenets of Buddhism point to that there is no absolute. So, (laughs) just give that up. So, the first noble truth, there is suffering, is an acknowledgement of the condition that we're in. There is suffering. Stop turning away from it. Stop avoiding it. And um, investigate, acknowledge, and investigate the suffering that there is suffering. And it's not um, all life is suffering, which is a mistranslation that sometimes um, people say. It's more that there is suffering. Otherwise, why would we be drawn to practice? Uh, why would he, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, have? set out to discover the end of suffering, if there wasn't suffering. So the first thing was was the, the acknowledgement of it. The second noble truth, and it's often, it's often thought to be the ailment, okay, if you look at it from a medical uh, point of view, or even scientific, the ailment is that there is suffering. And then there's a list of what suffering looks like. But ultimately, greed, hatred, delusion, cause of suffering. I'm sorry, suffering. Second noble truth there is a cause so there's a diagnosis a diagnosis is that selfish and self-centered craving or grasping attachment is suffering the cause of suffering the third noble truth is that is the prognosis there is a way out there is a solution and this is where we're at in this series of talks, which is that the cessation of suffering is possible. There is a cessation of suffering. And that actually that experiment that I gave during the the guided sit was a little bit of an experiment of looking at the cessation of things. In my own practice, um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that's okay. In my own practice, this was a very key uh, understanding for me, uh, insight for me to have, was to begin to see the ending of things and ha- and where between the ending and the beginning is where the mind often drifts into story or uh, planning or memory. It's this whether it's towards the ending or towards the beginning and who really knows, maybe it's the space in between. But it was a very helpful insight. And then also just that recognition of the ending of things. I think in our culture and I think possibly in many cultures, Mm. there is a resistance to that. Let me just say, if it gets too cold, please feel free to, you know, every window is open. So if you're a little chilly, maybe we can close a few if you're so inclined. (coughs) So that just so we'll get back to that the kind of arising and passing away, which is also just a really helpful insight. But it's all, it's key to the cessation of suffering. So let me just kind of give the formal right. There, the teaching here is um, oh, a lot of this is based on uh, the Four Noble Truths by Ajahn Somedo who is uh, actually Ajahn Pasano, or Lampor Pasano, was just here this weekend, and uh, so. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho is his teacher, his elder in the Thai Forest tradition. And this is a great little book and he's uh, invested the majority of his years as, as a monastic, as a monk, uh, in really just looking at and investigating the Noble truth. And he was once asked, um, I was in a teaching with him and he was once asked by a, a, a novice monk, who I think was trying to kind of trick him or something, but said you know like uh, if there was one teaching that is worthy of, of investigation continuously there's the one teaching that would be the kind of the synopsis of all the Buddhist teachings what would that be or what is that for you and without really a blink um, Ajahn Sumedho said oh well he's got he's big he's got a big barely kind of voice and he would say oh well the four Noble truths of course One could practice and investigate the affordable truth for, you know, a whole lifetime, not more. And that caught my attention because at the time, I was, you know, really, like, starting to, like, oh, the affordable truths, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, grammar school stuff, right? And really, the teaching is in anatta, this not-self, and the unpacking of that, and, you know, I was unpacking the Russian dolls, and I was wanting to see them all spread out, you know, and it, I think it's it's worthy to do that. It's helpful to do that, but then to come back to the beginning of these teachings or the origin. And so, very and, and actually, since that time, I'm not a scholar. I'm not scholastic, really, by nature. And so, um, I actually like really simple. Teachings and practices. I, f- I find those to be the most helpful for me, and ones uh, grounded or rooted in experiential uh, awareness. Uh, ones that we can really kind of investigate. And so, for a time, uh, I just saw the Noble truth as this kind of list of things on the wall. You know, oh yeah, there is suffering, and there's a cause of suffering, and there's a cessation of suffering, and there's a path. Oh, and the path. Really pay attention to that. Because that, you can really kind of unpack that, right? And I just kind of, oh, they're just, a, you know, a list. And this, what I like about this particular book, and we just ordered, Betsy just ordered a case of them, so we're having a case come soon. Uh, and I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. yeah. That the the way that Azran Samedo has talked about it as, this is that each their steps, and each step is really an investigative experiential practice. And so, my the talks that I've given prior are kind of elucidating that. So, there is the cessation of suffering, of dukkha. The cessation of dukkha should be realized. The cessation of dukkha has been realized. So these are the kind of the three insights through all four noble truths. The first is the recognition. There is the cessation of suffering. So seeing the cessation of things, all things, and then having some encouragement or faith or confidence that suffering also has a cessation, just as Sound ends and emotions end and relationships end and jobs end and life's end. All things come to an end. The cessation of dukkha should be realized. So there's this, that's the action part. We're not grasping at it as much as we're being available for it, I think. is the way I like to think about it. And then the cessation of dukkha has been realized. Now, that's kind of a lofty goal on some level, uh, re- realizing the cessation of, su- of, of dukkha, of suffering, um, is really what is thought about it to be arahantship, or you know, the step towards uh, awakening, enlightenment, seeing very clearly. So I think that's true on one level. There's the, the the mundane and the super mundane. There's the mundane, which is this kind of how does this all fit in our daily life, and the super mundane is how does it go beyond what we know, beyond what we can know based on where we're at. Right? So I like to think of the mundane in like, can we see the cessation of suffering in little ways? Oh wow, my self view, my self judgment is way less. It's it's it has there's been some and maybe moments of peace and ease. Another teacher, uh, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, um, talked about this as this clarity as little nibbanas. So, nibbana on the super mundane is this kind of complete eradication of suffering. Uh, but little nibbanas, <laughs> little <laughs> moments of freedom, can be mundane, can be seen, can be realized, can be recognized. We've all experienced them actually. Unless you're just so caught in the suffering. Even in that moment of being able to let go of that obsessive thought or relationship or uh, uh, grief, there can be that peace and ease that can replace it or arise. Not actually replace it, but really it's like when we're not stuck here, then we make room for that freedom to arise. So there's that that teaching um, in Buddhism that Really, it's like we're already enlightened, fully enlightened, and we're just in our own way kind of a thing. So it's uh, that, you know, my teacher Noah Levine talks about this is uh, like an archaeological dig. It's an excavation process to find uh, that which is already true and how that uh, plays itself out. So... The whole aim of the Buddhist teaching is to develop the reflective mind in order to let go of delusions. This is the whole aim. So this is the first Russian doll. Mm-hmm. To develop a, the reflective mind in order to let go of delusions. So we have to be able to concentrate and calm the mind to such a degree that it can actually be reflective. Um, I love. There's this teaching around the five hindrances, where there's this analogy that the Buddha gave around um, when one stares into a clear, like a clear forest pool, and just sees the the natural reflection of them of themselves, and that that is this kind of clear seeing. But often, anger uh, uh, causes the water to boil. Or to be obscured, um, desire is like pouring dye in the water, and it causes it to be obscured. And uh, confusion, restlessness, agitation, as a way of, of like like a wind, kind of you know, kind of uh, moving the water, the surface, kind of making it kind of uh, uh, I don't have like a little bit of a wake or whatever, so it's obscured. So these mind states that come. And then doubt is another thing that obscures our clear seeing. So this whole practice is about allowing us to see the calm, the mind, enough. To see the reflection. And there's in Mahayana Buddhism they they call it like the reflection of our true nature is one of the ways they kind of talk about it. I like that. I don't know that there is If there is a true nature, you know what that is. I'm not exactly clear about that, Uh, but that's that's I like that as a uh, a way of that's that uh, the uncovering that happens. The uncovering is that which is our true nature, which could be compassion or kindness or clear seeing or who knows original goodness. Sometimes they say. So the four noble truths is the teaching about letting go. By investigating or looking into, contemplating, why is it like this? Why is it like this? That's that investigation in that first noble truth. There is suffering. And then the second noble truth, why is it like this? Why is it this way? So the Buddha is really encouraging people to have that investigation, not to get lost in the the intellectualizing of it, but to investigate in the here and now, in the practice. The experiential rubber meets the road of practice. So it's good to ponder. And even like, you know, just uh, Ajahn, I mean, Ajahn uh, Pasano was just here. Um, and it's good to ponder, you know, like when monks are here or nuns, and they visit. Like, why do they wear robes? Like, why do they have that bowl? Like, why do they choose to live in the forest? You know, it's 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 actually, you know, Ajahn Sumedho is 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 saying this is good pondering, and then to investigate why that is. So to ask or to read or to. Go to monasteries and experience it for themselves. You know, most monks and dons are, especially in our tradition, very open. Very open to And they, they I mean, they get asked those questions all the time. It actually helps them to reflect for themselves. This is my, I just guessed that. actually. Just in the same way that any time we're, in, we're investigating something, we're reflecting on it for ourselves. So we contemplate, you know, how this way of living has been sustained and handed down. So like, you know, uh, with the monks and the nuns. And then there was this transition that took place where now folks like me or, you know, lay teachers or householders um, also began to, uh, you know, teach. And when did that happen and why and how? And, you know, it's like not to get, again, too intellectual about it, but it's good to kind of ponder that. I'm not really sure how I became a teacher. (laughs) It just kind of happened. Like people just kind of started shoving me on, and I was willing. There was some investigation for myself. It wasn't just thrust upon me, really. There was encouragement, and just like people maybe encouraged you to practice, and then you chose to take that on, and then you come back. Try right now. So we reflect as we see suffering, as we see the nature of desire, as we, you know, kind of investigate or we we look at the attachment to desire as suffering. So there's some. There has to be some kind of recognition of that. At some point, attachment to desire or what we can call craving or wanting is suffering. At some point, we really have to acknowledge that in order to move forward. And like we have to acknowledge that we're hungry in order to allow the hunger pains to both be there and not overcome our mind. So we reflect, we might reflect as we see suffering, as we see the nature of the, the desire, we might reflect on it. These insights can only come through reflection. They cannot come through belief. There's something in here about that that i was like Give me a minute. I'll try to find that. There's a piece. A half a second. Here. Ah. Okay. So this is from um, Ajan Samedo. We reflect. As we see suffering, as we see the nature of desire, as we recognize that attachment to desire is suffering, these insights can only be can only come through the, through reflection, not through belief. We cannot make you cannot make yourself believe or realize an insight as a willful act. Through really contemplating and pondering these truths, these insights come to you. They come only through the mind being open and receptive to the teaching. Blind belief is certainly not advised or expected of anyone. Instead, the mind should be willing to be receptive, pondering, and considering. So, for example, do we feel happy or liberated by being attached to desire? Is it uplifting or is it depressing you know and this is that place of investigation okay so i'm being overcome by a mental obsession or um, desire of some sort of wanting and then to really begin to kind of take a like a step like a mindful step back okay is this actually helpful is this actually relieving me of suffering or is it creating more entanglement more desire so, uh, and actually, one of the things that Arjun Samedo was saying in this book and around this chapter is, um, you know, if, if actually grasping to desire and getting what you want is actually relieving and uplifting and satisfying, not satisfying on the moment to moment of like, ooh, I have this cookie and now I'm eating this cookie. But actually, because and, but then that's temporary, right? So it's not, not that mm-hmm. kind of satisfying. But actually, contentment kind of satisfying. Then go for it. You know, we're not saying uh, uh, don't have desire or or craving. What we're saying is investigate it. Is it actually giving you what you truly want? Which is peace and ease on some level, right? Happiness. On that larger sense, not the gratification of this thing. Even meditation, people sometimes they grasp at meditation as the, this is the thing that will, you know. And then it it changes all the time, <laughs> or it works for a while, and then it stops working. That's when it's really hard to keep meditating. And you're not getting the buzz. It comes back though, just in case you're one of those people that got the initial buzz. I remember when I first started meditating, I actually was reflecting on know, some, something that somebody said, but I had these like body highs that were so cool. Like I would feel the elongation of my body sitting and feel like my whole body was like becoming like this, like one of those paintings that I don't can't remember that famous guy, the, you know, I'm talking about. Who is that painter? And I go. Know. Maybe, maybe Dolly. Yeah, like the long Well, it wasn't really Dolly, but it was um, It was like Starry Night or also. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Was it Van Gogh? Yeah. Where they were like, like – anyway, they, I felt that like ethereal kind of – my body was like not as grounded. And I was like, whoa, this is better than acid, you know. <laughs> and then eventually – and then I would grasp at it and I'd want to like make it happen again. like – and then it would never happen again but yeah some of those like you know I had some just cool experiences and then once I stopped grasping at them they would come and they would go and I'd experience them pleasurable and then not pleasurable and you know mind states and then pleasurable and not pleasurable but there was a time where I was like, grasping to meditation and like getting enlightened and then it would be like that all the time I thought like I would just levitate read people's minds and talk about that a lot because it was really a, like a fixed delusion that I had for a time. <laughs> I really wanted to read people's minds. I would be such a good therapist. I'd be able to make millions of dollars. <laughs> so these are just some ways of like where meditation and the kind of um, delusion can happen around kind of the desire, the attachment towards uh, uh, meditative kind of Attainments. So, this is all kind of pointing to the truth of impermanence. This is the, the, the main piece around the third noble truth is understanding the truth of impermanence, anicca. That, of course, suffering has a cessation because it has a beginning. And just as we were investigating through the practice, everything that arises passes away, and we can really investigate that, and we can l- read about it. I've read about it, you know, for a while, a time and time again, and then and then just kind of dismiss it after a while. But no, no, really. I had this one monk tell me. About another monk because he wasn't going to admit it for himself or something. I don't. It was interesting, but about this really investigating Anicca and this kind of like, and it like led to Anatta, this not self, not permanent, no fixed and permanent self. And he was talking about this other monk that was at the monastery, but not at the time I was there. And he said that this one monk had be- become so kind of in- engrossed or in- uh, investigative of. This impermanent nature that he began to see, like, that this is not fixed. His own hand was not fixed and permanent, and actually just like bits of atoms and energy, you know, kind of like we can talk about that from a scientific perspective. But he was able to have this kind of real experience of that, inside of that. And that was really encouraged. I was like, ooh, I was encouraged by that. Again, there was a little desire of, like, oh, that sounds cool, you know. <laughs> Uh, this investigation of impermanence, the truth of impermanence beginning and ending of things right really paying attention to that and particularly uh, and this was my invitation earlier particularly as things are ending what happens to us in our hearts and minds where does it go does, do we become do we want to shut it away? do, do we want to avoid? You know, so slowing down that process and beginning to really see it. Rather than just developing a method of kind of tranquilizing the mind with this or that. So, I and I wrote tranquilizing and then um, the, and I was thinking of like tranquil. Like, you know, when we're just trying to kind of be in that tranquil state of kind of meditative you know, bliss, perhaps. Instead of just kind of uh, tranquilizing the mind, but then when uh, a autocorrect has tranquilized, like a tranquilizer, I was like, wow, oh, it's the same thing. Because <laughs> there's this way in which tranquility can be very, very helpful and very, very enticing and can keep us, actually. The Buddha warned against this idea of just seeking kind of that concentrative a uh, kind of mo- tranquilizing, or this tranquil state, and then wanting to stay there, and because that actually stops the process of moving towards freedom, you're actually not free. But we feel it feels really good, so let's just stay there. I think I tried to do that with lots of different substances for years, and it never lasted. And it always led back to suffering. There was some attachment, some grasping to. So instead of uh, developing the right method, you know, from the Buddhist perspective to tranquilize the mind, the Buddha himself actually had to break free from that and go off on his own and just begin to practice. Commit yourself to really seeing that which is true which is true in moment-to-moment experience, that this is really uh, what I think the Buddha is pointing to in this present-time awareness, a vipassana kind of insight, uh, mindfulness. Really seeing what's true and seeing how it changes and then seeing how that's true. Wise investigation involves courageous effort to look deeply into things you know we're going throughout our day all the time and we're like very often uh unconsciously reacting to our surroundings and then sometimes we're actually maybe half conscious about it but we're still reacting (laughs) this is true for me too you know i mean just because i'm sitting up here doesn't mean i'm any different and then there's moments of reflection of like, okay, that, that ha- maybe it happened af- after, you know, someone cut me off or whatever. Right? And I have this, it's much less than it used to actually. Someone cut me off on the way here and I, and I just like kind of moved and I like had a moment of irritation of like, and then I was like, whatever. And I was like, wait, I was like, oh. And I try not to pat my back too much, just like, go, you know, just moving on. Wow. But that's helpful, progress. It's helpful to see that. So again, just I'll just say this much: I'm not talking about analyzing yourself and making judgments about, you know, uh, why we suffer, why you suffer on a personal level, but that kind of like can we that can we uh, look at what is arising, and can we begin to investigate: is this entangling, or is this freeing? And if it's freeing, then how can we create the conditions to allow more freedom to take place without trying to, you know, tinker with it too much? So there's more on the cessation of suffering about renunciation and, you know, relinquishing, uh, even looking at mortality and cessation. But I'm not going to get into that a whole lot because um, that's like a whole another topic. I think the, the, the nutshell is that kind of investigative, reflective mind of what is, it, what is this like, this moment? And how is it unfolding? And the ending of the last moment and how does that, that fold over into this moment? It's just, I mean, that's a ton. Right? So maybe we'll end there. And I'll just thank you for your attention, participation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.